listening to Season 3 of Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. This week, we are examining the situation in the Central African Republic. In 2019, there were 598,000 refugees from the Central African Republic, with 543,000 of them in the neighboring countries of Cameroon, Chad, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and the Republic of the Congo. Along with that, there are 655,000 IDPs within the Central African Republic. Today, we are speaking with Louis Mudge, the Central African Director at Human Rights Watch. Your host for this week is me, Patrick Anderson. Today with Mr. Lewis Mudge, the director for Central Africa for Human Rights Watch. And Mr. Mudge, it is an honor to be able to sit down with you today and interview you. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. First question I want to start off with is, can you just describe to our audience what you do and what your organization is all about for those who aren't aware? Sure. Um, So Human Rights Watch is a a research and advocacy organization. Um, We do have our headquarters in the United States in New York, but we're very much an international organization with offices all over the world. Uh, We're about 400 staff. Um, And what we do is we... um, We document violations of human rights abuse. We expose that abuse and we we seek to change the parameters in which that abuse is occurring. Um, And that change comes from in a lot of different forms. It can come from the abuse stopping or it can come from minimization of the abuse. Um, And so we, um, we do work on the United States. We've done a lot of work on voting rights over the last year, year and a half. Um, we do work all across Europe with regards to migration um, uh, and, and xenophobia. Um, but my focus uh, is on Central Africa, uh, where I lived for about 13 or 14 years. Um, so I work on a portfolio that includes five countries, um, Rwanda, Burundi, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Cameroon, and the Central African Republic. Um, and my job now is to manage teams that do the research on human rights abuses in those countries. Um, my job before was for many years was as a researcher um, on those countries, um, living in, in, in a variety of them at certain moments um, and documenting uh, human rights abuses, um, which really are a wide range of, of abuses in Rwanda where there's a degree of stability. It's more of abuses affiliated with an authoritarian government and the repression of civil and political rights. Whereas in Central African Republic, um, it's really, um, well, it's, it's effectively a war zone. And so it's more abuses against international humanitarian law and the documentation of war crimes and the like. Um, so that, that's the sort of rough, rough sort of generalization about what we do. I will just uh, add that we're, we don't receive any government funding. Um, and so we're not affiliated with any governments. Um, 
which uh, enables us to, to freely criticize governments, including um, you know, Western developed governments. Um, and, and it gives us a bit of free reign and legitimacy um, in, in trying to hold governments to count. So what is your biggest challenges now as director when it comes to working with these governments, documenting, anything like that? Uh, the biggest challenge right now is COVID. Um, I, uh, I'm speaking to you from Vermont um, and I, uh, I left Kenya in uh, where I was based with my family in 2018 to move back to the United States, but I was traveling every month back to Africa, but that's, that's stopped. And so currently the biggest challenge is the distance. It's also, excuse me, it's also our teams on the ground, um, enabling them to work in a safe atmosphere in a safe environment, not only with regards to COVID, but also with regards to internal conflict uh, and recognizing that we're very limited in our ability to react um, in order to provide support to our teams because of the, the unanticipated travel restrictions that we find ourselves in. Um, it, has been a, it has been a fundamental challenge. In many ways, we're, we're sort of obliged to doing research from afar, even in the countries that we work in. Um, so that, that has really shifted the paradigm for us. Um, we were anticipating it. We're an organization that um, sees value in, in witnessing uh, these crimes and providing you know, testimony to the witnesses. And very often that means you have to sort of be there and, and actually be documenting what's happening. And that's just proved difficult. So, so that's the number one challenge. I think the, the number two challenge is, um, is really just the sort of um, keep maintaining a long view. I mean, I've been working at Human Rights Watch now for 10 years. Um, and when you're talking about what seem to be intractable problems, uh, very, very sort of long-term problems, um, you know, issues around um, political rights, issues around civil rights, issues around voting rights, and, um, and issues around the law of war and humanitarian law, none of these are going to be solved quickly. And so if, if, you know, everyone, people join Human Rights Watch because for a variety of reasons, but one of them is they, they really do seek to try to make a difference. And it can be very frustrating and disheartening um, when year in, year out, um, you, you, you haven't made the difference that you sought to make. Um, but on the other hand, uh, over the course of time, you do learn to see um, the ebbs and flow of change and you do learn to take stock in the small victories and you do realize slowly but surely that those small victories actually do accumulate into, um, into sort of pushing things in the right direction. So mm -hmm. it can be challenging work, but, but if you have a long view and you um, try, to, try to put that long view into context, um, it, it certainly is rewarding. I wanna shift uh, attention directly towards uh, the Central African Republic. Yeah. You had mentioned that it was basically an active war zone, but could you provide a, a brief overview of just the situation there? Sure, sure. I mean, the Central African Republic is a fascinating place. I mean, it's a, it's a country that a lot of, I mean, I, I presume this, the audience for this is primarily American. It's a country that a lot of Americans don't even know exists. 
Um, a lot of Americans actually think it's a region, but it is in fact a country. Um, it's a very large country geographically the size of France. It's north of the Congo, south of Chad. Um, but it has a very small population, only about 4.5 to 5 million people. And the CAR, it's a former French colony, and it really has just, since its independence in the early 60s, um, it's just gone through cycles and iterations of violence and coups um, of, of a small ruling elite ruling through corruption and nepotism and violence, um, and then a changing of the power um, and, and violently. Um, there is roughly a coup every 10 years in the Central African Republic. What we're seeing now is the latest um, bout of violence um, from a, a, a very bad coup in, in 2013. Um, in 2013, the president at the time was overturned by a, um, by a mostly Muslim uh, rebel coalition out of the north, so out of the sort of Chad Sudan region, uh, which had foreign backing. Um, and came down and overturned the president. And, and this in of itself was not shocking because as I just said earlier, the countries, the people in the CAR are very used to sort of coups and violent overthrows of power. But what they're not used to was the degrees of violence that was perpetrated um, towards the civilian population this time around. Uh, I was in Bangui in March, 2013 when the capital fell and it was shocking to see the, the destruction that the Seleka laid upon the city and, and subsequently as we got outside the city, laid upon the, the rural areas. Um, they, they completely, you know, they shot on civilians wantonly, they used rape as a weapon of war, they pillaged and destroyed properties um, to a huge extent. Um, and, and a lot of the foreign mercenaries just loaded up trucks with all of this stolen goods and drove back up to Chad and Sudan. Um, so it was really, and thousands and thousands of people were killed. So it was really shocking. Um, all the, all where we are now is really a consequence of that coup and a consequence of, of mismanagement by the Seleka and the fracturing of the Seleka into various groups. Um, the Seleka were overturned by an African Union and French force. Uh, in, in early 2014, and the African Union force was subsequently replaced by a, a United Nations peacekeeping mission, which is still on the ground in September of 2014. But, um, but the Seleka managed to, while they were pushed out of the capital city, they managed to solidify regions across the country to where basically 75, on any given day, 75 to 80% of the Central African Republic is actually under the control of rebel groups. Um, and, and this is a variety of different rebel groups. Um, unfortunately, um, these rebel groups uh, created an alliance uh, late last year, so late 2020, another alliance, um, and have surprised everybody, including myself, in how quickly they have been able to um, assert uh, themselves onto what we assume to be um, state-controlled territory to the point where, as last week, they were actually in Bongi, the capital. They launched an offensive against the capital. And while that was pushed back, um, it's very much being viewed as a sort of, it was a, an attempt just to sort of gauge the UN's appetite um, to fight back. Um, and so um, 
it's the CAR has never been a safe place to be, but it, it really is now in the throes of the worst violence it's been in since 2013. Um, and folks like myself who, who follow the situation in the Central African Republic are terribly worried because the armed groups that make up this new alliance are the very same armed groups who only eight years ago were um, committing egregious human rights abuses and crimes against humanity. And so uh, once again, it will be the civilian population um, that is affected most um, by these, these power struggles. Yeah, so what is the relationship then like with the UN being there? Um, I know in other situations, um, such as the Rwandan genocide, uh, the UN was criticized for uh, their lack of action. Yeah. So what, what is their relationship like uh, in the country? Um, and what are their main initiatives? Sure. I mean, with, with any UN force, whether it be a peacekeeping mission like you have in the Central African Republic or a monitoring mission like you had in Rwanda in 94, you always need to sort of read the fine print and actually see what the mandate is. I mean, these countries don't put their troops in these other third countries to die. Um, and they don't want them to. And, you know, the UN peacekeeping mission in CAR is losing peacekeepers now on a sort of 72 hour basis. There was a, um, uh, there was a Gabonese and I believe a Bangladeshi killed uh, the day before yesterday. So, um, you know, it's, um, it, you, you always need to, to recognize the mandate. A lot of lessons were learned in Rwanda in 94, but that was a monitoring mission. That was a monitoring mission led by a Canadian made up primarily of Belgian soldiers and they were to monitor a ceasefire. The, 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 the MINUSCA, which is the French um, acronym for this peacekeeping mission in the Central African Republic, um, is a peacekeeping mission. And it has a very clear delineated mandate, which is to protect civilians. So in effect, this peacekeeping mission in, in CAR is supposed to use its resources, which is a fancy way of saying guns, to make sure civilians are not killed. Um, and sometimes it succeeds in doing that, but you always hear about the failures and very often it does fail. Um, and when it does fail, it is rightly criticized for having done so. And what you see is, you know, we're now, um, it was set up and gosh, we're seven years in, it's unbelievable to think how time is passing, but we're almost seven years into the, this mission and there's a lot of frustration uh, there's a lot of um, disenchantment. There was a lot of hope put on this mission when it was established. A lot of folks thought it would be a panacea and it was going to um, you know, solve these really intractable political problems in the Central African Republic and, and you know, realistically it never could. But there are a lot of questions, rightly so, um, with regards to how a peacekeeping mission made up of over 12,500 uniform personnel, which costs well in excess of a billion dollars a year, um, how it really could come up so short um, and how these rebels um, who really only have pickup trucks and light weapons, they don't have any air. So the UN has helicopters, um, how these rebels are able to take so much ground 
Um, and it, it raises a sort of broader question around peacekeeping in general, which is the countries that contribute these troops, um, they do so for a variety of reasons. Some of them are financial, some of them are to gain um, you know, political clout. Um, but what they don't want, as I alluded to before, is for these troops to die. They don't want to lose their soldiers in these um, sort of countries that it's hard to justify back home why their soldiers have died. You think about Somalia in 1993, when the US lost soldiers in, in Black Hawk, when the Black Hawk Down um, saga and how quickly we pulled those soldiers out because of the backlash. Um, so, you know, what that means is oftentimes these, peace, these peacekeepers are not enforcing their mandate. Um, they're not chasing down the rebels. They're not protecting civilians. Um, and so it leads to a lot of frustration. Now I will say, having seen this mission operate firsthand, having traveled all around the country with it, um, what they do is absolutely vital. If the peacekeeping mission wasn't there, um, I'm absolutely convinced that we would be talking about hundreds of thousands of civilians killed in the Central African Republic and not tens of thousands. And I know that's sort of a macabre and, and sort of dark way of contextualizing things, but, but they have saved lives and, and, and they have protected humanitarians and they have allowed a basic degree of infrastructure um, which can support the civilian population to be um, to remain in place. So it's 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 more you know when you look at these UN missions, it's very easy to criticize them because objectively they do fail. Um, I think what's harder to do is to put into context the difficult situation that they're placed in, to put into context the countries that send the troops there. Um, and to recognize that it's never a good situation when a peacekeeping mission has to go in. Um, and that really the best you can expect is they maintain a base level of stability. Where does then the human rights watch uh, come into play? Do you have people on the ground there right now, despite it being so dangerous? And what are the threats when it comes to being in a, on the ground in a place like that? I mean, yeah, so, so yes, we do. Short answer, yeah, we absolutely have people on the ground. Um, we, uh, we take security very seriously, but, but as stated before, we also recognize it's, you know, the biggest challenge we have right now absolutely unequivocally is COVID, and that's because it's difficult for us to travel. I, was supposed, I would be in Bangui right now if it wasn't for COVID, um, you know, documenting what's happening because um, um, phone calls, oftentimes do not suffice and people can, can shift the truth, can be shifted. And so you really need to be on the ground documenting what's happening. Um, so we do have folks on the ground. Um, you know, it, it is, yes, it's, 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 there's security concerns in the sense of conflict, but more the security concerns are in the sense of um, if people know who we are and what we're doing. We do not travel around with big flags that say, well, who we are, um, because we're advocating for accountability. I mean, that, at the end of the day, in the Central African Republic, um, there's a lot of reasons for this violence. But I can say, having worked in that country for over a decade, um, one of the principal reasons is impunity people carry out these crimes because they can get away with it. Nobody is held accountable. Um, and
And so, you know, we're pushing for accountability. We're pushing for accountability on three levels at the International Criminal Court uh, in, in the Netherlands, um, in the local courts in Bangui, but also through a hybrid court that's been established, which uh, is called the Special Criminal Court. It's made up of international and national judges and prosecutors. Um, so we're very vocal. We have a very public stance on accountability which means that we publish the names of warlords, we publish the names of government officials who've been tied to abuse. Um, and that does put us in a degree of danger. It's not something we take lightly. You know, we, 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 we strive to the best of our ability to ensure a secure work environment for, for, our, you know, for our staff who are on the ground. Um, also for folks like myself who go in and out. I used to be based in, in Burundi, for example. I was based in Rwanda. I was based in Congo for a number of years. Um, so for our staff who are also you know, living in the country. Um, but at the end of the day, um, we, um, we rely on, on our work being objective. We rely on our work um, incorporating the responses of, uh, in the case of the Central African Republic, of these rebels. So the same rebels that we denounce and publicly call for accountability on. We also meet with, uh, we also have their numbers in our phones and we call them. Um, and so they do feel that they are rightly getting a fair shake and being able to explain and justify why they've committed some of the crimes they have. Um, and we, um, and we, um, you know, we, 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 we take a serious stock of the security situation anytime we travel, anytime we engage in sort of Difficult conversations with armed with armed men, but you know it's it's always a it's always a, a moving, you know it's always a it's always a very fluid situation, um, and it really reinforces that you need to be on the ground and you need to be um, as abreast as you can possibly be to what's happening um, in order to take the right choice. I want to talk a little bit more about you mentioned the the special criminal court, so. What are the specifics of that? And when it comes to actually having a trial, uh, if someone's convicted guilty, where are they held? So for the special criminal court, uh, they will be held. Um, it's not clear. There is space for them to be held in, in other jurisdictions. And just by means of an example, there was a, a special tribunal in the Sierra Leone, in Sierra Leone uh, for crimes that were committed years ago. And there are uh, people that, are, that were convicted uh, and it was deemed by the court too dangerous to hold those individuals in Sierra Leone, so they're actually held in Rwanda. Um, so that's that's a sort of precedent case that that is on a lot of folks' minds with regards to the special criminal court. Um, they they could be convicted in Central African Republic and held there. They could also be shifted to one of the countries that's a supporter of the special criminal court, of which there are many. Um, most likely, they would be held in an African country. Um, I think what's more important about the Special Criminal Court, or just as important rather, is the fact that the process, the, the judicial trials and processes are happening in the Central African Republic, which enables Central Africans to access justice, to see the wheels of justice turning in a much more tangible way. I mean, the, the International Criminal Court faces a lot of criticism on a lot of different fronts. Um, much of it is legitimate, um, but one of the main criticisms, which I very much agree with, is that it's very, it seems very foreign um, to the people who were most affected by the crimes, um, because it's happening in Europe. Um, you see the individual, the accused individuals in tailored suits, um, they, get, they get 
sort of stipends for food and clothing that well exceed the, the sort of average living wage of someone in the affected country. And so it does sort of, it does sort of, it's easy to get cynical about the International Criminal Court. One of the great advantages of the Special Criminal Court, one of the great advantages that we promoted um, as Human Rights Watch in advocating for this court as a sort of key international civil society partner for this court was that it would give Central Africans the ability to follow what was happening with the people um, who committed these crimes um, and to see it in real time in Bangui, the capital of the CAR. Um, and, and that's something that's very exciting and, and we'll continue to follow when the court you know, gets up and running. Now you personally, when you've lived in uh, these different countries and especially when you begin reporting uh, on uh, different things and holding these governments accountable. Have you ever been in any sort of situations where uh, you feel that you are in danger or a government entity has threatened you personally? Uh, yeah, 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 many times. Um, I, um, um, a short answer is absolutely. I've been, I've been in, um, we've been in situations that have been very, very hairy. Um, in terms of the Central African Republic and in terms of the Congo, especially in the Congo around 2012, when a rebel group called the M23 was taking, very quickly taking vast amounts of territory in the East in the Kivus, North and South Kivu, in which we were trying to document abuses tied to it. We were very quickly swept up in events, which meant that we were sort of in amongst the fighting um, same thing in Central African Republic, but I think more interestingly to your question is, is the government action. So I was, I was labeled a terrorist in Rwanda in 2014. Um, my work visa was, was shortly pulled after that. Uh, I was able to travel to Rwanda up until 2018, but in 2018 I was declared undesirable. It's actually three years ago right now, I think it was sort of around the third week of January. Um, where I was, um, was, was declared persona non grata in Rwanda. And, and, and that to me, I mean, conflict is conflict. We make choices, we get training, we make choices based on what's happening and we go in and anything could happen. What's more frightening to me is what governments decide to do um, because they're taking a, a deliberative action against people who work for Human Rights Watch. So people who are trying to expose abuse uh, are the target. The abuse itself is not the target. The abuse clearly by attacking the person trying to expose it, they're condoning the abuse. Um, and, uh, and Rwanda is an example in which I was very much personally attacked. Um, I was slandered. Um, I was deeply offended by the stuff that was published against me. And it finally emerged that I was you know, kicked out of the country and, and will never be welcome back. And, you know, it's, 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 it's affects me deeply. You know, Rwanda was a country I traveled to just out of college. I, I joined the Peace Corps and I traveled to Rwanda and, and was very much affected by, you know, it's post-genocide reconstruction. And it's a country where my wife and I met. And we were where we raised our first child. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, getting attached to these regions of the world and then being sort of dismissed from them, obviously, uh, you know, can affect, can affect someone. Um, but um, it's sort of the nature of the game. 
when you have these government entities who are going after uh, people who are exposing them, specifically possible citizens that you're interviewing from that country, do you have any sort of mechanisms in place to protect those people who are either living in the area um, or are frequenting in there that you know are not part of the Human Rights Watch themselves? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, and it's really, it's really, it weighs very heavily on us, and we 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 consider this deeply, especially in countries like Rwanda, Burundi, uh, those two countries. Currently, it's very dangerous to be associated with Human Rights Watch. Congo right now is okay with the change of power from Kabila to Tshisekedi, but but a few years ago in Congo, it was very dangerous to talk to Human Rights Watch. And at the end of the day, look, we're just an NGO. We're a non-governmental organization. We're not the UN. We're not the International Committee of the Red Cross. We don't have airplanes. We don't have, you know, we, we, we're very limited in what we're able to do. Um, and so the number one thing, if, if we are going to speak with someone, is to explain to them who we are, explain the work we do, um, and then let that individual make a decision based on um, how they perceive the risk and how we together perceive the risk. Um, we always strive in dangerous situations to keep testimony um, anonymous. You know, we, we, we do you know, strive to, but at the end of the day, if you're, if you know, Patrick Anderson, for example, um, suffered a human rights abuse um, and we gleaned information that could only be gleaned from um, someone close to Patrick Anderson, well, then there you go. You're, if you're a government investigator, you're trying to figure out who snitched to Human Rights Watch. You can start with his family, you can start with his friends, and, and you know, very much unfortunately in authoritarian you know, situations, and this goes beyond Central Africa where I cover, um, you know, people who dare to speak to Human Rights Watch um, do so at a risk. It's not a risk that we take lightly at all. Um, and, you know, the best we can do is try to enable that individual to make a very informed decision about the risk they're taking. And sometimes, I wouldn't say often, but sometimes the risk is too much and the people have to say, listen, I, I can't do it. Um, I can't speak to you. I mean, we, we right now, currently in Burundi, we have many people who say, um, we don't even get into preliminaries of a conversation. They say, I can't talk, it's just too dangerous. Um, and so that's just a reality that we have to, you know, that we have to live with. Um, and it means we just have to, as, as researchers, as a research organization, we just have to try to cast a wide net um, and to be very, very careful about what we publish um, and how we publish it. Because really at the end of the day, we're, we're incredibly limited in our ability to react after the fact if someone's been affected. The last question I have for you is with all of this conflict and violence going on, are there any positives that we can look for in the future when it comes to the Central African Republic or the Central African region in general? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would have quit my job years ago if I was, you know, slipping into sort of the pessimism bucket. I mean, the, as I said earlier, one of the challenges is to take that long view. Right. Um, in the Central African Republic, for example, uh, I remember I was in Bangui in March of 2013. The Seleka um, were 
basically going through the neighborhoods with 50 caliber machine guns loaded on pickup trucks and shooting indiscriminately. And I remember sort of being huddled down with a, with a diplomat from a European country in a compound. And, and he said, look, the UN will never send peacekeepers here. It's the Central African Republic. It's a quagmire. It's never going to happen. Um, only a year and a half later, we had a major robust peacekeeping force, which as flawed as it is, has saved lives. As I've said earlier, uh, we'd be talking about hundreds of thousands of dead, if, you know, and instead we're talking about tens of thousands and it's still too many, but it's a lot less than what we could have had. Um, I remember uh, in 2015, you know, when we were lobbying for the establishment of a, of a, a special criminal court, a court that was in, it's a very unique court. Um, and if anyone, you know, if any of the, the students following this or anyone follows law, I mean, they should look into this court. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a court that's in the national legislation. It's a national court. And they're allowing an international prosecutor and international judges to be a part of it. Um, it, it you know, the Central African state has in some ways acknowledged that it has to ring in this type of support in order to see justice through. Um, and in 2015, when we were doing this sort of lobbying and advocacy to get this court established, it was just for months, it was just wall after wall of people saying, no country's ever gonna succeed its sovereignty like that. It's never going to let uh, its judicial system come under the sway of international forces. And we don't see it that way. We see it as support from the international community. Um, but lo and behold, we were able to get the court uh, across, um, which, which, is, which is, you know, amazing because we got it through an executive and a parliament. Um, and I say we, I'm not saying HRW, I'm saying sort of we as the global sort of supporters of the special criminal court um, of which HRW is a part of. We were able to get this through. Um, it, was, it was an incredible victory for um, reason, for um, sound advocacy, um, it, it really was a it really was a, a a huge day. And while the court, you know, the wheels of justice turn slow, and the court has not you know unsealed any indictments yet, but investigations are absolutely ongoing. And I really do think this court is going to be the way forward for the CAR. I think it's going to establish that a degree of accountability that's needed. Uh, I think it's going to be a model for other African countries. Um, it's worth noting that when I say there's international support to the court, it's not like all Europe. Um, most of the judges come from other African countries. And so it's, it's, it's fantastic to see a sort of African solidarity around this court. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, you know, you, you have to, you have to, you have to recognize those wins. Um, and, you know, yes, there were rebels in Bongi last week, and it's, it's hard to sort of square things when, you know, there's violence 12 kilometers outside of, of you know, parliament, um, you know, it's hard to sort of square things. But, but when, you, when you take a step back and you realize that despite this violence, huge steps have been made, um, you know, you, 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 um, you have to remain optimistic. Um, you have to, you have to, uh, recognize that you're in this you're not in this for the salary i mean if any any of the students at usc or beyond are trying to get into amnesty international or hrw they're great jobs but you, you don't do it for the paycheck um you do it because of the work and um, you do it because when you take that long view and you realize things are moving in the right direction um you, you want to stay engaged
That was Louis Mudge talking to us about his experiences in the Central African Republic and working for Human Rights Watch. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, a huge thank you to Maxi International House for making our show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. This episode is going to wrap up our third season, the biggest displacement crises from 2019. We'd like to thank all of you for your support, whether this is your first time listening or if you've heard every episode. We'll be taking a short hiatus to plan our next season, but expect us back around the end of February. We'll keep bringing you news and bonus content in the meantime.